So we're again reading from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26 and reading through to verse 3 in chapter 2. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Thanks so much, Susan. It's been wonderful to be with you uh, uh, these few weeks. What I want to start off with is by asking how many of the mothers got breakfast in bed today? Just put up your hand if you got breakfast in bed. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is so you can see my wife got breakfast in bed, all right? Uh, I know some mothers don't like getting breakfast in bed. I understand that. Sue is one of those. Uh, but I insist she has breakfast in bed on Mother's Day so that I can tell you that I gave her breakfast in bed. Right? Uh, it's not true, actually. She doesn't mind getting breakfast in bed. But uh, I think that in biblical terms, I have just lost my heavenly reward. Right? Uh, Carl before was talking about the fact that uh, Trinity Unley is a wonderful place to get sick, uh, if you can put those two ideas together. And uh, that's actually, it's quite true around the network. Um, most of you know that Sue's uh, been treated for lymphoma and when we went to the GP he called us in because her blood test came back not looking good and he said I, you, I'm not quite sure what's going on but it's not good and we'll need to refer you to a haematologist is there anyone you would like to be referred to uh, I threw out a name he said well that is the leading haematologist in this area in Adelaide but I think he's quite busy um, and uh, I said why don't we give him a call and find out um, <laughs> He looked a bit perplexed. I said, it's okay, I'll call him, Uh, because he happened to be one of my uh, very close friends in the Trinity Network, and uh, so I gave him a call, and he said, oh, no, that's no problem, just put the GP on, and I watched this um, professor of haematology grilling over the phone this GP for the next five minutes. I felt so sorry for him, uh, but so pleased for Sue. Uh, (laughs) It was one of those uh, situations, wonderful. Trinity is that sort of network. Uh, Today... We're actually focusing on the whole area of how we think about work as Christians. Uh, I was so thankful for 
the man who's been treating Sue, uh, who is a Christian man and has a really uh, well-orbed understanding of what he does as a Christian person in his profession. But I understand this is not an easy thing to wrestle with as we think Christianly about living in this world and how we work out work and rest and those sort of questions. That's where we're focusing today. Just to refresh your memory, we're spending three weeks on the first little section of Genesis. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, We've looked in the first week about the nature of God being the creator, uh, the implications of the fact that he rules over everything. Last week, if you were here, we looked at what it meant to be human, to be made in the image of God and its implications for how we think about people, value them and our purpose. This week, we're just sort of coming to that image question and focusing down even a little more precisely on the question of being made in the image of God and what the implications are for the way we work. And if you were listening to that reading, what it means for us that God is someone who rests as well. And how, what, how does rest fit into our understanding of work and, and life? And I know, it, as I talk to people, the idea of both working and resting is a tension that they feel with their lives constantly, I think. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll tuck into the Bible. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a gracious God. You speak to us. Uh, you do so clearly. But also, we, we see here in these early chapters of the Bible the way in which you... Uh, shape our thinking about who we are and our purpose and understanding of how we should live in this world. And Father, we pray that you'll be with us as we reflect further on this early part of the Bible. Give us understanding and clarity uh, as we reflect on how to honour you in this world. Uh, We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you get asked, how is your week? How do you respond? Uh, how was your week? What do you say? The most common answer I hear, and probably the most common answer I give, to be quite honest, is, I've been so busy, you know, flat out. I haven't had time to scratch. It's just the way in which we tend to interact and the nature of the busyness of life, even though Adelaide is a little more laid back than some uh, capitals around Australia. Flat out, busy. Even when I talk to retirees, it's interesting. I say, how are you enjoying retirement? And they'll say you know, I'm busier now than when I was working, you know. It's sort of, uh, life doesn't seem to change even though your role changes. And of course, biblically, uh, work is not tied to whether you get paid by someone or not. Of course, that's, that's a very narrow view of work. Uh, but the whole nature of the busyness of life, but certainly part of the busyness of life, is paid employment. It's estimated that most people in their life will work roughly 100,000 hours in paid employment. That is second only to the number of hours you sleep. But, of course, depending on whether that number, 100,000, goes up, depends on how much sleep you get. Uh, But it's obviously a very significant part of who we are and how we live in life. And I think it is exceptionally hard to get the balance right. Uh, Some people work to live and some people live to work. I had a friend when I was a young university student. He was about 10 years older than me, and he worked to live. That is, his name is Dave. He told me, he was about 30 at the time, that his goal in life was to retire by the time he was 40, right? 
and to make enough money to be able to do that. And he's, he deliberately set himself with that direction in mind, right? He, uh, he didn't get married because he figured that would really curtail his ability to retire early because uh, he'd have to spend money on his wife. Uh, so he didn't get married, right? Uh, he was in the public service. He was the first person in the state public service to reduce his working week from five days down to four days, right? And he eventually retired at 41, right? He didn't quite get his goal. But, uh, you know, he was working to live, right? And living was what it was all about. Some of us are a bit the other way around. Uh, jobs can actually dominate the way in which we think. When we, when we come to these opening chapters of the Bible, what we see is we have a God who both works, then when you get to the seventh day, a God who rests, right? We're made in the image of God, and we're also made to both work and to rest. But it's interesting, isn't it, that that I think work in this world tends to dominate us. Uh, It tends to overshadow everything we do. But from a biblical perspective, can I say, if you want to understand what it means to be a human being, if you want to understand what it means to live in this world, actually the more critical category is to understand rest. Rest is meant to dominate our identity and our purpose and thinking. So let me try and pull that apart for you because that may be a, a funny sort of an idea. So let's, let's tuck into this and see if we can work out from God, the, the worker and the rester, uh, and us in his image, the implications that flow from that. Uh, what we've seen is that uh, the God of the Bible, uh, the God, the only God, he systematically constructs the universe and the world. Right? He is a worker. He's a God of order, a God who creates beauty, a God who sustains everything that he has made. That's the God we're talking about. We are made the image of God. If you look at chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 27, this is what we're told. Mankind, humanity, is made in his image. Male and female, he created them. And the task of those he's created, well, you see that back in verse 26. Uh, God says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Or if you go to the other side, to verse 28, uh, what we're told there is... um, humanity to subdue the world, to rule over it. That whole idea is reinforced if we were to go further into chapter 2, verse 15. A man is in the garden there to work it and to take care of it. Now what you see here is the fact that God has entrusted to us the task of caring for the world that he has made. Now it didn't need to be that way. God could have created a totally self-propagating world Uh, where we didn't have to do any work, you know, and all we had to do was play chess and go to hipster cafes and have coffee and avocado on toast and uh, to relax and and the world could have just looked after itself and we could have just plucked food and, you know, the resources that we needed. God could have created it that way, but he hasn't done it. What that means is there is something very purposeful and dignified in God's created order about work. Um, it, it, we're designed to be workers. It also gives us accountability and responsibility. Uh, we're like uh, tenants, uh, tenants who rent a house are responsible to the landlords for the way in which they keep the house. Uh, we're like that in the created order in the world. 
we are created and given delegated responsibility and authority by God to look after the world that he has made. Now, God hasn't stepped away from the world, but he has entrusted to us certain responsibilities that we are to carry out. What that means is, it doesn't matter what job you've got and who your employer is, understand your ultimate employer is God, right? Your boss has a boss, whether they know it or not, right? The one who made the heavens and the earth and has created everything. And so we always keep that in mind, especially if you have a Christian sort of framework. When you get to Genesis chapter 3, which we're not really covering, uh, what you discover in Genesis 3 is that people turn their they're back on God. There's a rejection of God being the boss of the world and the boss of us. Uh, we no longer want God to take that task. We want to be our own bosses, right, and to run in this world without authority over the top of us. What that means is there are consequences for this world and consequences for our work. If you go to chapter 3 and verse 17, God speaks to Adam and tells him what the consequence is. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. And it's a uh, preemptive um, decision by God, cursed by God, that indicates the work is now going to be tough. Um, there are going to be difficulties with it. There are frustrations. And if, well, not if, everyone in this room knows that you know the reality of the frustrations that are built in to the created order and relationships that make work very difficult. You know it if you're a gardener, right? It is fun to grow flowers and veggies in a herb garden, but why do the weeds grow twice as fast as the flowers, you know? Like, you know the frustrations that are built in uh, to the nature of the created order. Um, that's the picture of the way God has created, the way the curse is operating. As you go through the rest of the Bible, you move on from Genesis 3, the Bible doesn't speak a lot about the nature of work in this world. Uh, you get to the New Testament and uh, we're, we're told that it's important to work because there's a necessity about working if you want to eat. You've got to you know, do that. 2 Thessalonians 3 or... There's an instruction in 1 Timothy 5 about working to provide for your family, those who depend upon you. If you go to a place like Ephesians 4, verse 28, uh, there's the idea of working for the benefit of others in order to be generous to those around you. Uh, if you go to Colossians 3 or Ephesians 6, uh, there we're told that our work is meant to display the character of God. Uh, so if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, then what you're concerned about in your work is to make sure you operate with integrity, uh, with faithfulness, uh, with a care for the people around you. you. You display the qualities of a loving God in your workplace context, including being faithful in the job you've been entrusted with. However, let me say the Bible doesn't say much about the 21st century questions that tend to dominate our thinking is the Bible doesn't say much about what work I should choose to do. It just doesn't seem to be a big deal. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk about being the best at your job you can possibly be. Uh, the Bible uh, doesn't say we should look for work that pays more money or 
how we should think necessarily about fulfilment in our jobs uh, or should I expect to get enjoyment from my work or not? Those are not questions actually the Bible is terribly uh, preoccupied with, to be quite honest. I'll come back to some of those in just a moment and just sort of put them through the grid of how we should think about the Bible. God the worker. Let me flip to the whole concept of rest. Uh, Last week when we were looking at day six, what we saw there was that the the apex of God's creative activity is humanity. Uh, That's clear when you go through uh, this section. Uh, Making people in the image of God, we're the only ones in the image of God. But can I say this is not the climax or the crown of this opening narrative in the Bible. Uh, In fact, that's obviously going to be the seventh day. Uh, you may recall that the, um, the number seven is very significant in biblical terms. It speaks of uh, perfection or wholeness or completeness. So we, on the sixth day, humanity is created. But then we come to the seventh day and you're full of anticipation because you know this is the big thing that's happening in terms of God's creative week. Um, uh, seven, wholeness, um, Chapter 1, verse 1, there are seven words. Uh, God is mentioned 35 times in the first chapter, seven times five. Seven is so significant, and now the seventh day. And you would have picked up also that there's a a change in pattern when you get to the seventh day, which which again is designed to draw your attention to it. So as you go through this opening chapter of Genesis, at the end of each day you get the refrain. There was evening, there was morning, there was a first day. There was evening, there was morning, there was a second day. There was evening, there was morning, there was evening, there was morning. Now, there's a, a conclusion to each, each of the days. But notice at the end of the seventh day, in chapter 2, there's no end. There's no conclusion to this day. And again, it's just pointing to the significance of what's going on here. So why does God... Rest. I mean, as you go through this opening chapter and think about the extraordinary nature of creation and all God has done to bring the whole of existence into being, and suddenly I'm saying, and here is the high point, right? God has a nap. Uh, you think well, that's, it feels a little anticlimactic? Do you not find? Chapter 2, verse 2. On the seventh day, he rested. He rested. Now, why did he rest? Uh, I mean, he'd been very busy creating the universe and the world. Maybe he needed a rostered day off, you know. Uh, well, no, you know that's not the case. He's got a bit bored, you know. He'd been creating busily. He needed a change of pace. No, obviously that's not it either. Uh, just a break to, you know, like us, we need a break to stimulate our creative juices before he makes another universe somewhere else. No. So what's going on? What's going on here? First thing to say is, let me say, when when it says God is resting, it doesn't mean he's doing nothing. Uh, Be very clear in your own mind, as soon as God does nothing, we don't exist. So obviously he's not doing nothing because we exist. And that's the same all the way throughout the scriptures. When you go to um, uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 3, Notice what it says there. He's resting from all his work 
in creation. That is, he, he's completed the work of creation and now he turns his attention actually to sustaining everything he's made. It's, it's a changing pattern, if you like. But again, I want you to notice very carefully in chapter 2, verse 3, what we're told. God blesses the seventh day and makes it holy. Right? He sets it apart. What's the significance of God setting apart this day as holy? Uh, why does God mark it out as special? And if you're a, a student of the Bible, uh, then you know, for example, that when you get to the New Testament, Jesus got into the most fights over this issue of Sabbath and the Sabbath rest. He was constantly accused of breaking uh, God's pattern in creation. Why? Why this day? Let me give you the very briefest synopsis of some of the Old Testament ideas relating to this Sabbath uh, before I try and draw some ideas together. When you go to um, go through the rest of the Old Testament, what you discover is that the idea of Sabbath day is much more than the idea of just having a rest on one day a week. Right? It's much more comprehensive in terms of its purpose and the way it operates. In Exodus 20, verse 8, uh, we're talking about one of the Ten Commandments given to Moses... Uh, we're told that there must be a keeping of the Sabbath. No work on the Sabbath. And in fact, as you go through the law of uh, the people of God, if they worked on the Sabbath, they could actually be executed. It was significant. But this Sabbath idea appears in a whole range of ways throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 23, verse 10 and following, we're told that for the people of Israel, every seventh year was a Sabbath. Right? They took, a, they took a, a year off. Now, think about an agrarian culture that depends on the land for food. How many farmers do you think we could find in Australia that we could say to, look, we've decided what we're going to do is we can have a, have a year off every six years, just have a year off. It'll be fine, you know. Um, those of you who are on, you know, come from that sort of background know farmers could not bear to think about that possibility. So if Israel were to do this, what implication would it have for them? Wouldn't you think that's a precarious, risky thing to do? Yeah, absolutely. Not only that, when you go to a place like Leviticus 25, uh, what we're told there is there was a year of jubilee. Every 49 years, seven times seven, the land in Israel would revert back to its original owners. It just bounces back to those who had it at the start of that 50 years. You just sort of give it away. You see, the, the Sabbath wasn't so much a ban on work. It was a time for the people of Israel to remember their relationship with God and to celebrate his goodness to them and also a reminder that they were totally dependent upon him for every life, every breath, every crumb of food that came across their plate. And they were to celebrate the marvellous generosity of God in the book of Deuteronomy, as uh, God's people are paused on the edge of going into the promised land, uh, God instructs them about how they should live. And in Deuteronomy 5 verse 15, listen to the way in which the significance of the Sabbath is spoken about. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt 
and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. See, what's the purpose of the Sabbath day? To remember the salvation of God, the one who brought them out of slavery into the promised land. You see, I take it, um, Sabbath is meant to operate like the celebration of a good marriage. Um, so in February this year, Sue and I celebrated our, what, what number was it? So Sue can never remember how long we're married for. <laughs> um, we, we've been married for 39 years, right? So we had a celebration of our 39th wedding anniversary. And what we did was we gave thanks. We looked back on 39 years of blessings from the hand of God. We stopped and we thought about the present blessings that we're enjoying as a couple and as a family. And we also thought about the future and thought about how totally secure we are in the hand of a loving Heavenly Father. Do you understand how Sabbath operates to do the same sort of thing for followers of God? Our goal in life is not ultimately work. Our goal in life is to rest. It's actually to enjoy God and to know his kindness and generosity towards us. You see, that's the shaper of life. Now, what I'm going to do is just talk for a few moments about, uh, just summarise some of the ideas as we think about both work and also about a more global sense of life, right? How does this idea, uh, the biblical idea of work and, and Sabbath connect into thinking about how we live our lives? Well, firstly, motivations for working. Uh, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't seem to have a lot on the sort of work we do. That is, we're made in the image of God to work, no question about that. Uh, but in our so- society, um, so much of our self-image seems to be tied up with this question. Uh, what you do. And can I say, in a, in a congregation like this one, extremely well-educated, many people with significant roles, uh, it's, it's inevitably going to be a primary sort of issue for us to work through, how we view ourselves based on our work. You know that, don't you? Uh, in Adelaide, it, it might just be a social nicety, but, but if you meet someone you don't know... It's about the second question. You say, what, what's your name? And then almost second, maybe third, what do you do? Right? It's a mark. I know that sort of is just helpful and friendly, right? But there's a sense in which there's a, a pegging sort of thing that goes on. Can I say, when we look at what we're told here in these early chapters of the Bible, the work you do or your lack of a job does not determine your value. Right? It does not determine your value. Uh, God determines your value. Understand, God does not value a high court judge any more than an unemployed car salesman. Do you believe that? Well, the test for you is, if tomorrow, say you're in paid employment, if tomorrow you are sacked from your job and couldn't get another job, Will that change your sense of self-identity? It'd change your circumstances, I get that. But would it change the way you feel and understand yourself? If it does, 
It's because you actually don't understand what God says about how you're made in his image. Understand? That, that's the reality. Does not determine our value. Our value is not tied up with the income we earn from our job. Uh, say you're in a, a low-paying job or you're not paid at all because you're unemployed or you're engaged in work that just doesn't receive any pay for different reasons, uh, a retiree or a volunteer or a homemaker, are you of lesser value? No, you're not. Your value is not determined by your income. And whatever you do, you ought to work as if serving the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 7. Should we look to our work for fulfilment? Um, how should we think about that sort of issue? Now, I take it that uh, we're made to work and therefore it will give you a sense of fulfilment or satisfaction. That, that, it should work that way, shouldn't it? I think it should. Uh, uh, move away from my work. Uh, I've told, told you about the fact that I'm not very good at handyman tasks, all right? Uh, and it's, it's a miracle if anything I turn my hand to turns out anything like okay. What that means is if something does turn out okay, I want everyone to applaud it, right? <laughs> That's the way it works. So, so the other day we had a leaking tap washer and there was this, this metal casing over the top of the tap that I was having trouble removing, but I worked out a way to get it off, right? They screw on. Didn't know if you know that, but they do. And uh, I managed to get this, this casing off, replace the tap washer... And I insisted everyone in the house and everyone who visited the house in the next week should come out and notice the tap was not leaking. Right? Uh, now, I understand I derived an inordinate amount of satisfaction from that. But I tell you, when you turn your hand to different tasks uh, and you're able to tick them off, it is. There's a level of satisfaction with that. That's absolutely right. But can I say, if your key measurement in life is tied up with job satisfaction and significance, then you are destined to be disappointed and ultimately unfulfilled. Do you understand? It's a, it's a derived thing, job satisfaction, not a key thing. Uh, as a Christian, should I be the best at my job I can possibly be to honour God? I hear that sort of uh, language. I need to... Uh, to serve God properly, I need to be the best at my job I can be. Can I say that is not Christian? Right? It's not possibly Christian. Now, I'm not saying don't be good at your job, but all I'm saying is that if you're a Christian under God, you have multiple responsibilities in this world, one of which is your job, but one of which is the people around you that you're responsible to, your family, extended family. Uh, one of them is church, one of them is, and we could add a whole stack of things there. I take it what God says is he wants you to be faithful in the spread of activities under him. And they will vary a little bit in terms of the time and uh, attention you give them at different points because of the way in which they, they shape around you. If you say, I have to be excellent at my job, Almost always what that turns out to be is I'm not going to be faithful in some area of life because instead of choosing faithfulness in your job, you've chosen excellence. And to be excellent at your job often requires lack of faithfulness in other areas. 
you understand the way that process works? It's the idolatry of work. It, it, the work becomes too important. Now, don't hear me saying, don't work hard. Don't hear me saying, clock on at one second to nine and clock on at one second past 5.30. I'm not saying that. Faithfulness in your job inevitably will require more. I was pleased that the professor of haematology took my call at 4.45 on a Saturday afternoon, right? And he was pleased he could do it too. That didn't sort of... Do you know what I mean? Like, that, that was a good thing. He was very kind, and it's good to do that. But just understand that faithfulness is the measure across the activities that we're talking about in life, not excellence. Right? That's, uh, I'm happy for you to come back at me on that one, uh, but I think it is significant to think through. Remember also that your job does not last... Uh, as far as I can tell, there will be no doctors, lawyers, garbage collectors or scientists in heaven. Uh, I'm not saying you won't have done those jobs. I'm just saying their usefulness will have expired. Uh, those who are professional musicians, there may be a role for you. Uh, <laughs> uh, just noticing one here. But you understand that, that in the general scheme of things, your job does not... Be- when I turn up at heaven, God will not say, I'm glad you trusted in my son and you drew excellent wills when you worked as a lawyer, right? I've got a filing cabinet full of them. Look at this one, you know. That that will not be on the agenda. It'll be a matter of irrelevance. We need to understand the time-bound nature of the work that we have in this world. But let me say, the Bible speaks of a work that lasts for eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, uh, Paul the Apostle Uh, speaks at that point he says always give yourself fully to the work of the lord because you know your labor for the lord is not in vain your labor for the lord is not in vain sometimes people have said ah so my work if i do it serving the lord is not a waste now or for eternity which is an interesting idea but it's just wrong um the reason it's wrong is because uh, the the idea in 1 corinthians 15 about laboring for the lord is tied to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where the labour for the Lord is explained. And back in 1 Corinthians 9, it is clear that the labour for the Lord is the work of promoting the Lord Jesus in our world. So uh, that's the whole idea. And that work actually will last for eternity. The promotion of Jesus to others is the key. Now, I'm not saying give up your job and do what I do. I'm the only one labouring for the Lord here. Congratulate me. You know, I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. Right? But I'm saying remember that as you work, it is, a, is your labour for the Lord where you work that actually will last forever. Uh, and to bear that in mind. And you labour for the Lord through having integrity and grace and being faithful and being honest and treating people well. Your character displayed in your work, reflecting the character of God. And also, as you take the opportunity to commend the Lord Jesus to other people, that labour actually does last for all eternity. Work. Let me flip to rest, and I'll be much briefer here, even though actually this is much more important, really. Uh, Rest actually tells you more about the meaning of your life than work does and your purpose. Uh, Secular studies, they they highlight the importance of the the work-rest 
balance. Um, most of us know that if we burn the candle at both ends, it has bad impact on life generally, right? If I, if I go too hard for too long, I get grumpy, right? And everyone around me, you know, encourages me to go and have a rest because they don't like grumpy Paul, right? And uh, you know that there are implications for you if you don't take that into account. But at the end of the day, the biblical idea of rest is so much more than just taking a day off each week. What we have here in Genesis chapter 2, right at the start, is God inviting humanity to enjoy rest with him, to enjoy a relationship with him, which is where true meaning and purpose uh, are found. That is, rest is relational. It's remembering who God is and why he's central to all of life. I love the the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, It says our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's the idea of rest. As I said before, it's interesting, Jesus constantly got himself in trouble on the Sabbath. The uh, religious leaders around and kept accusing him of working on the Sabbath. Uh, if you go to a place like Mark, the end of Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, at that stage, um, Jesus and the disciples are travelling, they're going through a field, the disciples are plucking grain in the field. And the, the religious leaders say, what's going on here? You know, your disciples are working on the Sabbath. And it's interesting at that point, Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. What, what do you think he's saying when he says that? Is he saying, I'm God? Yeah, he probably is saying that. Is he saying he can do whatever he likes on the Sabbath because that's the privilege of being God? Possibly he's saying that as well. But I actually think the real point he's making is that he is the point of the Sabbath. Listen to what he says in, in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Now understand at that point, he's not saying nine hours sleep. He is saying restored relationship with God, peace with God. Uh, in Westminster Presbyterian terms, the ability to enjoy him forever. Jesus makes that possible. He does it by his death to sin and by his resurrection to life. He creates that possibility. As you hear at the start of the Bible, it is so clear that the point of life is determined by your relationship with God, not by your work. And can I say, if you have no relationship with God here this morning, if you're not sure about that, then inevitably you have to look somewhere else for your purpose. You have to look in creation somewhere, what God has made. And so often, work becomes the thing that we dedicate ourselves to and derive our meaning from. If you have a relationship with God, then your work will be in perspective. What's the main goal of life? Friends, it is to keep remembering 
that your purpose is to rest, not to work. And your work will fit within that rest. It's quite radically transforming, I think. Let me pray for us, and uh, we may have time for questions, we may not, and uh, if not, you can always grab me afterwards. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that here at the start of your word, you put together the big building blocks of what it means to uh, live in this world. We get the, the clarity that living in this world means acknowledging you as the creator, the maker, uh, the one that we have relationship with. And yet, Father, we know that uh, in our lives the temptation is to push you to one side and scramble around for other identities and purposes that are to do with what you've made rather than with you yourself. Uh, Father, we, we pray you help us to repent of that, to keep looking to you for meaning and significance and forgiveness and life and eternal purpose. And, Father, that those realities will keep infusing day-to-day living. Uh, Father, graciously help us to work this out together Uh, generously and kindly to each other Uh, help us to keep exhorting one another with the ultimate goal of dwelling with you for all eternity and to work out what it means to faithfully do that for you in this world father we, we commend ourselves to you in jesus name amen Thanks, Robin. Uh, we do have a couple of questions today, um, and I know we're getting kind of close to the end of our time, but I think they're helpful questions. So, Paul, would you like to come up? Um, I'd love to ask these questions of you and get your, your thinking on them. Uh, the first is really a question that relates to our excellence and work. Uh, two questions on this. One is from Colossians chapter 3, um, where it says... Uh, um, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Um, How does that not equal be excellent in your work? Or the same kind of question, but from Ephesians uh, chapter 6, talks about slaves obeying and pleasing their masters in the earthly context. How does that not equate to working excellently? Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Um, So a couple of thoughts. One is um, the quote from Colossians 3 um, you know, verse 23 of chapter 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, uh, not just for human masters. It's interesting, isn't it? Back at the start of chapter 3, it says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, sitting sit at the right hand of God. That is, the framing of the way in which we operate in uh, Colossians 3, verse 23 is within the context of serving our ultimate master. And therefore we serve the Lord Jesus in a wholehearted way and serve within that wholeheartedly. So that would be the first thing I'd say. It's exactly the same in Ephesians. So you go to uh, you know, Ephesians 6 where it talks about slaves. But if you go back to the start of chapter 4 uh, or the start of chapter 1, it is very clear that the context is that, that, that you operate in that service in primary service to the master of heaven and you're, you think of it in that way. That is, you, you cannot subvert your allegiance to Christ in terms of your work. It sort of fits there. Right. So that would be the first thing I'd say. Notice also it doesn't say excellence. It says wholehearted. So um, can I say that some people sometimes approach me and say, can you recommend a good Christian lawyer? Right? And I will say, do you want a good Christian or a good lawyer? Uh, that is because they don't mean the same thing. Uh, like in every profession, some people are more skilled than other people. When it comes to excellence, 
the, what you're imposing at that point is a not just a wholeheartedly, which I take it as faithfully in your context, uh, but rather you're saying you ought to be good at it. Right? Now, for some people, being really good at their profession comes at an idolatrous cost. Um, and uh, that is, to be excellent at your profession means you're going to be unfaithful in some, some other areas of your life. Uh, and therefore, I would say, do not be an idolater, change your job. Right? I don't say that lightly, but do you understand? What, what I'm pointing to is faithfulness, given the way God has made you and given your wider responsibilities, wholehearted in that sense, in your service. And the wholeheartedness reflects the character of God in your work, integrity, diligence, uh, honesty. Will it mean working long hours at different points? Yeah, I expect it will. It certainly did when I was doing it, you know. Uh, but at the same time, you have other things that kick in there. Will I work to be excellent at my job and neglect my wife? I don't think that's an option. Will I work so hard at my job so that I'm wholehearted in my job that my kids wonder who their father is? Maybe not. Do you understand? That is, trying to work those sort of issues through in a faithful way, I think, is the task. It's made easier when you understand in both those situations that um, start of chapter 4 of Ephesians, start of chapter 3 in Colossians, it's the service of the Lord. You have a, a master that your master at work sits underneath and therefore you serve your primary master. So if you're in Israel for now and your boss says, do not talk about Jesus, I'm simplifying it, I'm not sure that's exactly what's going on. If Israel for now and you're told by your boss, do not speak about Jesus, you say, I think I will <laughs> because my heavenly master trumps you the uh, you know the rugby union organizing body and therefore we'll have a bit of a discussion around that one now i know that issue is more complex but i'm just using it as an illustration of the the sort of conflict we sometimes get into thank you i've got another question okay. here that i think is also helpful for us yep. are there specific ways we could chat or talk to our kids and teenagers now so they develop a helpful mindset before they start to choose so to speak, work pathways. Absolutely. So uh, I think, so I have three kids who are professionals married to three people who are professionals, right? So don't, don't hear me being against professionals. I happen to have been one. I probably still am one, possibly. Who knows? Uh, but do you, you understand? So, uh, but in this sort of context, what we tend to be is very career aspirational and our kids imbibe that. So if I have a capacity, then I should work to the capacity that I have. Normally that operates in terms of uh, results. You know, if I can get high marks for my year 12 TER, and if they're high enough, I should do whatever career I can possibly do that ranks in that scheme of things. We, now, can I say that is just worldly? It is totally godless to think that way. Right? Let me give you... I'll throw, throw a grenade in and then we can have a chat over morning tea, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, so you're wanting your child to be as faithful and honour God as much as possible by choosing a career. What's the first thing you will want them to be able to do? Well, be in a context where they have the most opportunity to talk to people about Jesus and probably in a spot where there's least number of Christians working so that they can represent him well in that context 
your child gets 100 for their TR. I know that's not possible, but they get the top mark, could do any profession they choose to do, and so you encourage them to be a factory worker. And the reason you do that is because that is where there are so few Christians uh, in the workforce, and therefore there is the greatest need for them to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, don't quote me, this is the Harrington rule for choosing jobs, right? Uh, I just want to throw that in as an alternative way of thinking about it. Now, as Christian parents then, how do we help our kids work through those sort of issues? Uh, you extol faithfulness in their study, you extol faithfulness primarily to the Lord Jesus Christ, not aspirational goals of careers and jobs that will earn them money and prestige. Because we do not think that's important. Except we do, actually. Uh, it's an area that we just need to keep being changed in, in terms of our hearts. So, you know, the, I remember parenting is such a challenging thing because God makes your kids different. Uh, it'd be much more straightforward if they were all exactly the same and you could just cookie-cut out your approach. Uh, we found each of our kids we had a different approach Ben, our eldest, he was an overachiever we had to constantly say ah, kick back man Do <laughs> relax you know. Uh, with, with Kate it wired totally differently again with David, all the ability in the world but not a lot of drive academically, he had a drive for lots of things really but, uh, so faithfulness for Ben was not working as hard as he was faithfulness for David was think maybe you should be working a little bit harder, you know, even though his marks so David got really good marks, had this A average but wasn't working faithfully do you understand, so we had to say come on mate, you know, you really should be putting in appropriate time to do that faithfulness, that's what faithfulness looks like in terms of working it out and trying to apply it and then faithfulness because you want them to represent the Lord Jesus well in this world rather than cut neat lines as a surgeon if they're a surgeon, they should do that. But uh, do you understand? But, but that's not our big goal in life. So, yeah, they're just a few thoughts, which I'm happy to chat about later. Good. Thank you so Thanks much, Paul.